Turn with me this morning uh, again to the Gospel of Matthew today, the 16th chapter. Next couple of Sundays will be in chapter 16. Today we are in chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. If you're present with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the human one is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because no human has shown this to you. Rather, my father who is in heaven has shown you. I tell you that you are Peter, and I'll build my church on this rock. The gates of the underworld won't be able to stand against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Anything you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven. Anything you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. And he ordered the disciples not to tell anybody that he was the Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, so I don't know what all you have been Netflixing and Huluing and whatever else during this time period where we've been home way more than we wanted to be. Um, I am not a big fan of, and I'll use air quotes here, uh, kind of reality television. Um, but every once in a while, I will find myself getting hooked on a kind of renovation show or a competition show. Um, so I know that some of you um, are big fans of like baking shows where you get a bunch of people in the room, you give them all the same ingredients and see what shows up or comes out of it, um, or, or construction shows. My, our kids, um, Noah and Carrie, have tried to get us to watch a show called Blown Away, which is a show about glass blowers, and they get all these folks who know how to blow glass, and they get them into uh, this room together with all the furnaces and all the stuff that they need, and they have a set period of time to try to come up with some artwork, and for some it breaks, and some, you know, they try to do all this thing, and then the worst one gets voted off each week. It's very exciting. Um, But this idea of kind of putting people in a room with kind of similar contents and similar materials to see what kind of happens is kind of the basis of all of those shows. Now, This morning, hang with me for just a minute. Um, In some ways, that's what biblical scholars think, in particular the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those first three that we have. In some ways, that that is what they have done in order to write the gospels that they've given to us. It is believed that Mark was the first of those written. So so it's interesting, when Jesus... um, resurrected and ascended, he didn't hand the disciples a book. He formed a people who would go and be witnesses to the resurrected Lord in the world. But as that first generation of apostles lived and began to die and Christ had not come and returned to fulfill all things yet, they began to realize we probably should write some of this down so we can extend it to the next generations in ways that hold to consistency. And so It is believed that Mark then took some of these sources that had been floating around and begins to craft Mark's gospel. Now, the reason we think Mark is first is because Matthew and Luke kind of got to cheat. Mark was sort of season one of Write a Gospel on Netflix, and, and Matthew and Luke were sort of season two because they got to cheat a little bit. They not only had probably some of the sources Mark had, but they had Mark too. And they were able to take Mark's gospel and begin to 
articulate their own vision of the gospel. So um, probably the one I've studied most is Mark, and we have talked about Mark as this gospel that sort of leads us um, in this idea that Christ is Messiah. All these great things happen, but then we get this turning point in chapter 8, and we are led then to the cross. And so Mark's point is this. We, we know Jesus is Messiah, but he's not the kind of Messiah we expected. And, and Luke takes all of this material and narrates Jesus as this one who comes to bring liberation, to bring jubilee, to make all things new, the boundaries between Jews and Gentiles, between rich and poor, all the boundaries that we have set up, all of those are eliminated in Christ Jesus and the new creation life that he brings. Now, Matthew, as we've been looking at, is narrating the life of Jesus through the story of Israel as the fulfillment of that story. Now, here's why that's important for the text this morning. When you study the Gospels in that kind of way, then one of the interesting things becomes this. What are some things that Luke includes that Matthew and Mark do not? And maybe what are some things that Matthew includes that Mark and Luke do not include? Or what are some things that Matthew and Luke include that Mark did? Like, there's, that's how biblical scholars make a living, right? Like, that's what they do. <laughs> that's how you write a dissertation. But, um, but there are also those texts that show up in all three. And one of the reasons this text is so familiar to us, I would argue, is because it is central to all three of those Gospels. Mark places it in chapter 8, and it's the turning point. Um, if you get this, <laughs> Peter gets the right answer, so he can kind of see, remember the guy that's touched twice, the blind guy? He can see well enough to get the right answer, but the rest of the gospel is about how he still doesn't quite see, and he needs to be touched again. Luke places it in chapter 9, and is right at the heart of this question of, is Jesus the one who is going to lead this jubilee? Is he the Messiah who's going to bring about this liberation movement? But you'll notice here two things about Matthew that are unique. Matthew makes this section long. In fact, we're going to have to spend two weeks on it. Uh, we're here in verses 13 through 20 today. Next week, we come back to 21 through 28. That Matthew lengthens it. For example, when, when in Mark, Peter gets the right answer and says, you are Messiah, here's Jesus' response. Hmm. That's in the Greek. Hmm. <laughs> well, Peter gets the right answer in Luke. Jesus' answer is, hmm, 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 right? But in Matthew, when, when Peter gets the right answer, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, oh, oh, very good. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. You are Peter, Petros, rock, and on you this church will be built, right? It's powerful expansion of this text. And he expands it, but not only does he expand it, but he kind of holds it till it's later in the gospel. So again, if you're still with me, Mark and Luke plays it fairly early. But for Matthew, it's as though we've been following along this life of Jesus, this recapitulation of Israel's story. And now we're getting about two-thirds of the way through and he's about to take us, like the other gospel writers, to Jerusalem to describe what Messiah looks like. But now that you've come about two-thirds of the way through, now we get this question. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, 
I'm glad you asked, Lord. I mean, uh, we've been sending out surveys. It's an election season, and you're very popular. Your approval ratings are through the roof. Some people think that you are John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some think you're Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets, which is a really important thing. So whatever else we want to say about Jesus, people of his day understood there's something significant going on in him, something powerful, something prophetic, something that's altering things, something that's calling what is into question and offering something new. It's a powerful vision. And I want to say even today, every Easter, Time Magazine or Newsweek will always do a cover story about Jesus. There is a fascination with the person of Jesus in the world. Some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah, one of the other prophets. But here is what's so critical, the question that Jesus asked. But okay, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, for a number of reasons, I am convinced, and part of the reason most of us know Matthew's version best is not because it's longest and we Bible quizzed over it. But we know it best because Matthew uses it in this kind of way. If you're into drama um, and you go to plays or you watch television or films, you know, every once in a while, a writer will do what's called breaking the fourth wall. And what that means is this. If this were a play today, which it is not, this is not a stage, it's a platform, right? Amen, say amen to that, yes. But if you were at a play this morning, you would see the scenery on three walls, but you would be forced to imagine that these people you're watching actually have more there, or when you're watching television or a film, we are in, essentially in the fourth wall. We don't get to see what's there, but we get to imagine what's there. But every once in a while, a writer will break the fourth wall with their characters. If you're a fan of Hamilton lately, there are a couple of moments where the king looks at the audience and breaks the fourth wall and stares at them as though we are his citizens and we'll be back, right? La, 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 um, right? If you're fans of The Office, it's a sitcom built kind of like a documentary so that the idea is every once in a while when something funny happens in The Office, Jim or one of the other characters can look at the camera and give us this kind of look, right? And all of a sudden we realize, oh, wait a minute, we're in the story. That wall that divided us from what is going on just got erased and now we're in. What I am convinced Matthew does and why this is so important to us is because Matthew, in a number of ways, has drawn us into the story and so now is asking the disciples, like Christ is asking the world, who do you think I am? But now as he asks Peter and the others, who do you say that I am? Matthew sets it up so that it's actually breaking that fourth wall and asking us, who do you? You who've been with me now for 16 chapters, Matthew's saying. You who've walked all this journey. You who I'm about to take to Jerusalem. Who do you think Jesus is now at this point? Who do you say that I am? And by the way, if you answer like the crowds, you can go ahead and stop reading now. But if you want to share the answer Peter will give, come along and let's finish this story together. Are you with me? One of the reasons that's important, and one of the reasons this text is so important to Matthew and to us, is because it does ask us that question, who do you say that I am? 
Some of you who know me well and who've listened well for five years now, I'm going to say something I wouldn't normally say because I am not a huge fan of rugged individualism. But there is this part of the gospel that we just simply can't get over. And it's this. None of us gets to live ultimately off the faith of others. I feel enormously blessed. I joke sometimes about the fact that the two generations above me were all ministers and spouses and had no other marketable skills. I joke about that, but I am, I am deeply blessed and feel honored and blessed that those two generations, and it really goes back a third generation, it's really two great-grandmothers that really set the trajectory of faith for both my mother's side and my father's side of the family. And those generations brought me to church and brought me to church and brought me to church and brought me to church. And, and that heritage participated in practices both at home and other places that embodied that faith. And, and they sacrificed and sent me to Christian education. They, they did everything they could to offer that faith to me. But here's the deal. As faithful as those generations were, I don't get to live off their faith. At some point, and probably points, plural, <laughs> The question Jesus asks echoes across history to me and says, that's great, Scott. That's how your parents have lived and your grandparents have lived and your great-grandparents have lived. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, I have tried, and Devin and I have tried to carry that faith forward to another generation. But Caleb got launched off into adulthood. We kept feeding him and he kept getting bigger. Noah got launched off into adulthood. Jonah has been launched off into adulthood. This week we'll take Sophie both tearfully and joyfully off to college. And as much as we have tried to instill a life and vision and imagination of faithfulness to Christ and Christ's kingdom into their life, they do not get to live off our faith. At some point in their journey, and probably already several times, this question has echoed into their life. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And here's the deal. Those of you who are married know, Debbie tries to get me to be faithful. And I try to live faithfulness for her. But she can't live off my faith and I cannot live off of hers. We love our daughters-in-law. But just because we've engrafted them into this very dysfunctional family doesn't mean they get to live off our faith. For the cry goes out, Mel, who do you say that I am? Carrie, who do you say that I am? Are you with me? And by the way, that is a relationship question, not a religion question. So I, you know, I joke with you that when I'm playing golf or somewhere in the community and somebody asks me, you know, what do, you, what do I do? Especially golfing, it's always kind of fun about seven holes in to say I'm a pastor. And the language of the last six holes comes rushing back, right? Not mine. <laughs> Just want to make that cl somewhat clear. Um, 
But oftentimes when that happens, people will say, oh, I'm not, I'm not religious. Or even, and this always breaks my heart, I, I was meeting actually with some young people who were raised in this church recently. And I was talking to them about their faith, and they said, well, I'm not really religious, the one who was raised here, and the person was saying about the other, they're not religious at all. And I have to confess to you, my heart broke that we raised children who still think in that kind of terms. As though what they were choosing or rejecting was our religiousness. Now, that doesn't mean most of us don't go to church or participate in practices of faithfulness. Those are critical to who we are. But we're not people who are religious. We are people who have confessed something about Jesus. And so the question is not, do you like this religion? The question is, what do you think about Jesus? As my wife loves to say, we don't want to teach our kids church. We want to teach them Jesus. Are, are you with me? One last thought about that because I'm really on a roll. And it's the first time in 22 weeks I've been away from the pulpit. Whew. Are you following me? Get that camera working. on. The other piece of that is, is I want to say, especially to, to Sophie, I want to say to other young people, people of all ages, who, for whom that question becomes confronted. Sometimes I feel like People who decide not to agree with Peter, we'll get there in just a moment, feel like they have gotten themselves out of something, or it especially drives me crazy when there's a sense that they've reached a level of intellectual superiority, that they've outgrown the need for something like that. That, that always makes me a little frustrated. Because here, as I want to tell my kids and as I tell my students each semester, here's the thing you don't get out of. You don't get out of that question. And not just the question of who do you think Jesus is. You don't get out of the question of what do you believe to be ultimate. Another way to say it is this. What do you actually believe to be the story? You don't get out of having a story. As I love to quote my favorite ethicist, uh, Alistair McIntyre, I can't tell you what I'm supposed to do until I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part. So here's the deal. You may reject what I'll call the Jesus story, a story that says there is a loving God who created all things, including us, and he has created us all in his image. So we are all children of this God, but we are sinful and we've fallen apart from God's purposes, but God will not let us, not let sin have the last word, but keeps redeeming us and has entered in through the life of Jesus and has invited us into a kingdom of reconciliation and redemption and is making all things new until he comes again and all things are his kingdom. But like that... You can decide, that's not my story, but here's the thing. You, you have a sto another story, and the story may be this. There is no creator. We're just here accidentally. Somehow, randomly, a third rock from a sun in a vast universe was able to bring forth life. And it came in with an explosion, and it will go out with an explosion. And if that's your story, eh, okay. But be honest about that. It means that nothing that you do will actually really mean much except what it means to you. And there's really no moral code. It's just people of power trying to will their power over others. 
It means there's really no basis to judge who is virtuous and who is not. It means that there's really no hope when we die. We just go away. Are you with me? I mean, that could be your story. Just, just admit how depressing it is. What I want you to see is none of us escapes the question of what do we believe to be ultimate. Jesus asks us, okay, but who, what about you? Who do you say I am? What do you say is ultimately true? And so as much as I struggle with individualism, we can't get out of this. You are asked individually, I am asked individually, who do I say that Jesus is? But here's the crazy part. If you get the right answer, which Peter does, you are Messiah, son of the living God. Matthew adds a word that only shows up two times in any of the Gospels, and both times they show up in Matthew. Jesus says this, yes, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father is heaven. You are a rock. You are Petros. And on this confession of faith, I will build my, and here's the word, church. So here's the crazy thing. Even though Jesus asked you, who do you say that I am? In order to get the right answer, you have to join a whole bunch of people called church who confess the same answer. It's why we ask you, what do you believe? And if you say, I believe Christ is the Messiah, we say, great, we have some water over here. Now say it again. Do you believe Christ is the Messiah? Yes. Okay, now we're going to hold you under. Are you sure? The Father, Son, Holy. And you come out, and who greets you? A whole group of people who also confess that Christ is Lord, a people called church. And so you give up that individuality which we, with which Christ just asked you, what do you believe? And now you participate in a group of people across time who have said the same thing and who believe that Christ is Lord. And you're not excited about that. My mother is a little bit, but... But what are we confessing If you're still with me, one of the things Matthew includes is three titles. One of the oddest things about Matthew's version is he says this in Matthew and Luke, or Mark and Luke. Jesus says, hey, who do people say that I am? In Matthew, he says this, who do people say the Son of Man, or the human one in the Common English Bible, who do people say the Son of Man is? It's a title taken from the book of Daniel about the ruler who will come, who will be over every kingdom and authority. And it's kind of like Jesus, he's just not saying, who am I? But who is, who is the Son of Man? Who, does, who do people say the Son of Man is? You're not excited about that, but um, back in his old show, every once in a while, Stephen Colbert would have a, a critic of President Bush on, and he would ask them this question. Tell me about how you feel about President Bush. Was he, is he a great president or the greatest president? And the critic would go, yeah. Right? Like, he's asking the question, who do you say, I'm the son of man. Who do you say that the son of man is? The human one is. And Peter responds with two titles in Matthew. You are Christos, you're Messiah. You're the long-awaited king of Israel who is Lord over all creation. And you are, quoting Psalm 2, you are the son of the living God. Sometime this week, read Psalm 2 about a king who will come, who will be like David, but who will be more than that because God will say, this is my son. And my power and blessing and spirit will flow through him. 
And so we're confessing together that Christ is the long-awaited ruler who is over every nation. He is the one who is Messiah and King and Lord of all. And he is the very one through whom the power of God is working all redemption. That is the rock that the church is built upon. And so that means what we are confessing together is actually not so much religious as political. Now, I have to be careful here because we're right in the middle of two conventions. But this confession we make is not religious, it is political. We are confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord over all creation, and there is only one kingdom to which our ultimate allegiance belongs. Now, I know I harp on this, and probably if there's anything that gets me into trouble, it's this, but I'm going to keep doing it because it's true. We in this room struggle with that more than any other people on the planet right now. I was thinking this week, I have had the blessing of preaching in eight other countries, preaching Canada and Mexico, had the privilege of preaching in Guatemala and Peru, had the privilege of preaching in England and in Hungary, and I've had the privilege of preaching in South Africa and Kenya. You know what's interesting? In seven of those eight nations, I don't have to talk about what I'm about to talk about. Because none of those people are convinced that the place they belong to is eternal like we tend to. In other words, I never have to convince a Peruvian that their ultimate allegiance belongs to the kingdom of God and not to their nation. For our imaginations are really mixed up together. And so let me say this as plainly as I can. No Kenyan gets angry and leaves their church because the church did not put the Kenyan flag in the sanctuary. No Peruvian or Guatemalan, as proud as they are of their nation, expects their day of independence to become a religious worship service. Now, that doesn't mean patriotism and love of nation is a bad thing or we shouldn't care about those things because God has a plan and a place for nations. We'll get there. It's in Matthew 25. But it means those who have called Christ Lord recognize that their ultimate citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Peter says you're Messiah and later on he's going to figure out that that now means he has more in common with Cornelius than with his common citizens of Israel. That he is now one who has been called into a kingdom that overcomes all of the... And we... I said seven out of the eight of the nations because the one place that kind of struggles with the same thing we do is England. We come by our issues honestly. Because when we begin to believe that the purposes for a nation are always aligned with God's purposes, then we are never able to speak prophetically about what a nation does. 
That's why the gospel can so often get related to racism or a kind of colonialism. And brothers and sisters, we have to be a people who love where God has placed us and pray for the purposes that God has given to America, but we are people who are patriotic but not idolaters. And for some reason, that is a struggle for us. And to be a citizen of that kingdom is not just to recognize one's ultimate allegiance to that kingdom, it's also to recognize what the ends of that kingdom are. It's a place where the lion and lamb will lay down together, where the peace of Christ will reign, where people of every nation and tribe and language are being drawn together, where if there are people who are poor, they're being taken care of so that their life can be meaningful. And if there are people who have too much, they're constantly being asked, what do you ultimately worship, the kingdom or now what you have? And it's a people who are living into, drawn into, confessing those purposes. And then finally, it's a people who recognize as that kingdom comes, it can only come one way. We're going to get there next week. Because this is going to be Peter's problem. He's ready for that kingdom, but he has expectations of how it will come. And I'll just give it away. It has to do with the cross. Are you with me? How many people have logged off? Oh, it's going up? Oh, no. Um, last couple of thoughts. I've got to quit. But I'm having really fun today. Isn't this good? Thank you, both of you. Yeah. Um, last couple of thoughts. I love that Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I love that. It's the Spirit of God. Because that says to me, I'm not off the hook in terms of living faithfully before my children, but I cannot coerce them to believe that is something only the Spirit of God can draw them to do. I'm not the, off the hook to live faithfully to my neighbor, to witness and to love and to be an example of God's kingdom to them. But I am not responsible for their answer, who do you say that I am? Only the Spirit of God can reveal to them the ultimate reality of God and God's kingdom. When Peter gives the answer, Jesus doesn't go, I am such a good teacher. Oh, I knew that whole parable thing would finally work. We should market that. Snow, Peter. Oh, you get it. And it's been the Spirit of God that's been drawing you to you. And the other thing that I love is Peter gets it, and next week, come back, he doesn't get it. They can't say, but there's still so many ways to grow in our understanding of what it means to proclaim that Christ is the Son of Man over every nation, that Christ is the King we've long awaited for, and that Christ is the very Son of the living God. And to live in that way means that you and I will continue to grow and understand and be nourished, and we will fail, and the grace of God will give us mercy and draw us closer to him. Thanks be to God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells a story. He says, a couple of people decided to build homes 
one wasn't real bright. Like my wife, just longed for a beach house. But people had already built on the cliffs. So this person built just right out on the sand. Seemed like such a good idea, so close to the water. But then storms came. Winds blew. And that life that was built on that untruthful story was washed away. There's another person, other people. build their life on the rock. Peter, you are that rock. What you just said, that I am Christ, that I am Messiah, that is the rock. And those who build their life there, it doesn't matter how much the storms come or the winds blow, that house will stay secure. Not just for now, but for all time. You and I do not get out of this question, who do you say that Christ is? No matter how faithful your ancestors were, you don't get to live off their faith. You are not accepting a religion. You are confessing a Lord. You are not enacting some weird transaction that means you get to live however you want to and everything will turn out okay in the end. You're entering into the life of a citizen of a kingdom with the world's one true king. And any other life is a life built on sand. This morning, um, I hate covid I, I hate this life that we seem to have now. I, I would invite you to an altar this morning. And I, I can. Just not all of you at the same one. But if one or two at ends may want to come this morning, that would be an appropriate response. When you sense the Spirit of God saying, who do you say that I am? And I know the majority of folks who will listen this morning are watching right now at home. Or sometime during the week. And there's no altar there. That's okay. The altar isn't required. Just simply a faithful response to Christ is required. And so where you are, right in this moment, you can say, I, I have followed other lords and other priorities far too long. It is time for me to give my life fully and wholly to the goodness of Christ. And so as we sing this morning, I would invite you, if you need to pray and you're in this room, come and pray. I'd invite you, if you're in your home and you need to pray, pray. If you find yourself this week in your car, sitting somewhere in a cubicle, I don't know, watching, and you need to open yourself up to Christ, you may log on six months from when this sermon was actually preached and hear the voice of God saying, what about you? It's not, it is the Spirit of God at work in your heart, so respond. Respond and build one's life on the rock. Help us, God. Help us today. We don't get out of a story. 
we um, can live all sorts of idolatrous stories. We don't get out of the question, who do you say that I am? We don't get to live off simply other people's faith. At some point, we have to choose that we will too follow you. And when we do, we find there's this whole family of folks who've made the same confession, who are now brothers and sisters, co-laborers and co-journeyers, co-citizens in this kingdom. Strange thing is some of them share a nation with us, but many are of a different race and language, live under a different flag and government. But we find that we have this family, this citizenship, this people who are calling you Lord of all creation, who are working towards a new creation where the things that, are, that hell is trying to capture, we bind and protect, and the things that hell is binding, we loosen and let free. And we are participating and working together. And your spirit is making us citizens of that people. I pray, especially for those in this room and who are watching, who are in those moments of life where long-term decisions about trajectory of future are being made, may they recognize the question you are asking them and may Peter's response and their faithful response, may it lead them in a trajectory of life and goodness and blessing. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, each of us, when we walk in that same path of faith. So bless them today. I pray for some, even as we sing, who recognize their life is being built in the wrong place. May we confess that our life is built on you today. Speak to us, shape us, mold us, make us faithful citizens of who you are. For we pray this in the name of the Son of Man who is over every nation, over the Messiah, the long-awaited King. We pray this in the name of the very living Son of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand together.